Welcome to the latest from We Do This For Fun. You are in for a treat. A guest host, none other than my sister-in-law and ultra-endurance cyclist, Leah Gruen. Leah and I were honored to interview Stephanie Pearson, a freelance writer, contributing editor to Outside Magazine, and author of 100 Great American Parks, published by National Geographic. As one would expect, we talk about her travels, outdoor gear, and her super cool assignments. Stephanie reveals she's much more than a writer about places, but a writer who believes she has a responsibility to the natural world. When, where, and how much we travel are questions infused into her work, given the impact of travel on the planet. She encourages us to take a deeper dive into travel content as well. Top 10 lists and social media posts don't tell the story behind the place. As luck would have it, she mentions a place of great historical significance with a story of courage, ingenuity, and persistence, the Harriet Tubman Underground Railroad National Monument and National Historic Park, which is featured in her new book, 100 Great American Parks. Watch for Stephanie's feature in National Geographic this March or April. All right, let's get on with it. Coming to you from Minneapolis, Minnesota. A conversation about the great and sometimes not so great outdoors. I'm your host, Lynn Melling. And I'm Jody Gruen. And we do this for fun. I am Stephanie. <laughs> I am a journalist and um, a contributing editor to Outside Magazine, where I worked for a number of years in the office in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And I now live in Duluth, Minnesota, which is where I grew up. And I assume you're enjoying Duluth. I am enjoying yes. it. It's a beautiful, beautiful blue sky day today. Um, it's a it's a totally different climate. So I, I actually love having the two climates in my life, the desert southwest and northern Minnesota. They're both incredible places. So do you spend time in both part both regions then still? I do. Okay. Yeah. Every every year um, for the last couple of years, I, I just actually spent some time in, in New Mexico, Santa Fe, um, doing a camping trip. Um, and then I go down there, I take my mom who is now 80 down to Sedona, Arizona every year. And she loves to hike. And my parents had been doing that for, oh my gosh, 25 to 30 years every year. So now that my father has passed away, I'm, I'm the anointed, um, road tripper with my mom. So I spend like three to four weeks every winter down in Sedona and hike and mountain bike. And it's, it's a nice spot to be. That is wonderful. That sounds great. A nice balance with the, uh, you know, Duluth winters. That sounds wonderful. Absolutely. Yeah, it's nice. Good. Great. Well, we're so happy to have you here today, Stephanie. Um, so this is Leah. And yeah, I first knew of Stephanie through her work. And then I had the opportunity to meet her at uh, what's now Unbound um, down in Emporia, Kansas, a big bike race. Um, and I had suggested to Jody to interview you on the interview, Stephanie, on the podcast, because the um, this podcast, to me, at least my take on it, is that um, it's geared towards encouraging, empowering, and educating women to more fully experience the outdoors. Um, and Stephanie, I know, you know, through your um, work, you know, and knowing you personally a little bit, I know that you do experience and embrace the outdoors, and you bring that passion to others through your writing. 
um, even though your writing isn't necessarily for a female audience, it seems to be geared towards a a more general audience. So I'm wondering for people who are new to you in your writing, what you would say is some of the bigger themes in your writing, in your work. First of all, thank you for having me. And and I am so honored to be here because I just, I mean, Leah's career has been incredible, both her her engineering career as well as her biking career. And I sometimes think about you when I'm out there in the cold, fat biking, and I'm like, I don't know how this woman does it. Uh, (laughs) It's it's really inspiring. And um, and it's just been really cool the trajectory to see all of these all of these women come up. I it's interesting you say that the the um my writing isn't necessarily for a woman's audience because I I came up in Outside Magazine, which um I started in 1995 and it was very much a men's magazine at that point. Um and the mandate was to write for men and um and and you know in terms of what they put on the cover and their audience, you know, what they sold in their advertising, it was big trucks that only men buy at that point, you know, and and so so it's interesting to hear and to see how that's evolved and it's the magazine has evolved over time. And obviously there's a a growing audience of women, but I just, I'm so inspired by so many people who have come up and just embraced, embraced the outdoors like they always have. Um, But now there's more of a voice for that, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How has it evolved? I mean, like what, like, what's like a really like, um, something that you could say like, oh my gosh, it used to be like this. And now it's like this, where we can really say like, oh, there has been an evolution. It's funny. I was talking to somebody yesterday out in Montana for a story and he's a, the manager of a cross country ski area um, near big sky. And he was telling me that the number of applicants he gets who already have their wilderness first aid training and their, their woofer training, he said, it's just exponentially higher than it was like 10 years ago. And so I think people are coming to the outdoors um, more prepared and obviously more women are. Um, so, so things like that. And, and, and just, I know that Outsides made a huge effort in inclusion um, over over the years, um, just who's going outside. And um, but the interesting thing about that is that I worked up in the Boundary Waters in 1995, and one of the things I did was to get kids from North Minneapolis on trips in the Boundary Waters. So it's always it's always been there, but I think now there's much more um, attention being paid to it in a good way. Mm-hmm. So what is it about writing that you've chosen for your medium? And have you explored other other media and then come back to writing? Huh. That's a great question. It's funny. I no, I have not explored many other <laughs> options. I mean, I've, I've I've had to do things in the course of my life. I remember I went to Sweden as part of a as a part of a film crew once and I was the on-camera person and it was just a disaster. I was so comfortable. <laughs> I'm so much I'm such an introvert and so much prefer being, you know, behind my computer and just having one-on-one conversations. Um, but I, I, I've always wanted to be a writer. I, you know, I, I remember reading travel and leisure as a small kid and we didn't travel much and just, I, I actually wrote to the editor and asked her how she got her job and she emailed me back or she wrote me back a letter <laughs> and told me how to get my, how to get a job in the industry. Wow. So I've always wanted to be a writer. As a child, wow, you did that? Yeah, I did it like in eighth or ninth grade. 
I, I was just obsessed with travel and leisure and national geographic. And I was just like, I don't know how to do this. So I might as well just write a letter to the editor. And sure enough, she wrote me back. (laughs) I mean, that's wonderful that she responded and, you know, that made such an impact on you. That's really a cool story. Yeah. She, I think I still have the letter somewhere. Her name was Pamela Fiore. She's a great, great woman. (laughs) So Stephanie, what makes, what makes a good travel writer? Oh my gosh. That's a super good and sort of loaded question. (laughs) Um, I, I think the genre of travel writing, um, for lack of a better term, has somewhat jumped the shark at this point. Um, I think I think the era of great travel writing is Instagram and other forms of just sort of short form social media, you know, look at me, I'm here, you know, kind of thing has really, really sort of zoned people out to bigger thematic pieces you know it's like oh I can see where I'm going in Italy and I don't need to read the whole story so um but I I do think what I try to do in my stories is really it's not so much about the place it's more about the story behind the place um I should stop (laughs) well I could ask a follow-up to that because I love in your writing how deeply you think about kind of social issues like the environment and how human actions are impacting surroundings and like their considerations that people need to make and so I'm just wondering I guess in in any of those pieces is there like one issue um that you could you know in your writing that you would like our listeners to maybe think about a little bit more because you don't hear about the issues when you are reading those short form, beautiful Instagram photo, go to these five restaurants and go to see these sites kind of thing. Like what is, you know, what is an issue that people should actually be considering? Well, that's, that's really evolved over time for me, but actually one of the issues right now that I'm thinking a lot about is whether people should travel mm-hmm. um, in terms of, you know, just, emissions and the damage that it does and I know that's a very controversial thing to say especially as a as a travel writer who's who's had the opportunity to be to be at many places but um you know I really I wrote a story um recently about you know going to Sedona which I mentioned I've I've gone for the past I don't know 25 years and just how the increase in people there has really, really changed and is really damaging the place in a lot of ways. But at the same time, as a result, the community knows that and they're doing a lot about it and they're taking steps to mitigate that. And so I guess what I really want people to walk away from my stories is just a little more thoughtfulness around the choices they're making in terms of travel. Um, If you have a bucket list dream to go to Greenland, it's not like I'm I don't think you should go. I just think you should be pretty thoughtful about how you're doing that. You know, what, what does thoughtful mean? You know, like if you're going to go to Greenland, like what, what would you recommend people consider? I think thoughtful means, you know, maybe consider not going to, you know, maybe trying to rethink about all of your other travel plans for, for maybe the year or, uh, you know, the next couple of years and, and, you know, think about when you're hopping on that plane. I mean, I, I do this all the time when I'm on a plane, I sort of just cringe now thinking of all of the times in my life that I have been on a plane and they've brought me wonderful places and I've had wonderful opportunities, but 
I just, I asked myself, is this necessary? And if it's, if it's necessary, I can sort of justify it. But if, you know, if not, I just, I I've said no to a lot of things if I can't justify it, which isn't, isn't super a happy, it's not a super happy part of travel, but I, I do think the travel brings so much to people too. Yeah. So I think it's a really important dance. And, and uh, like I said, I'm not in a position to really place that. It's just my place that on anybody else. It's just my own feelings when I get on a plane now. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I try to be careful. Yeah. We were in Sedona um, last year and um, my husband has a friend who's kind of a van lifer, um, mm-hmm. but he was just talking about how van life isn't actually, I mean, it's not all that it's cracked up to be because of sort of the amount of people that are doing it. And then, you know, people need to use the bathroom. And so people are just, you know, I mean, it's just, it's like, there's, there's the lack of consideration of all of the the decisions or the choices that you have to make when you decide to go down a path and then what the effect is by you deciding to be a van life person and what that does to the environment, both physically and for other people's experiences. Absolutely. And I think a lot of people are super aware and self-aware and people are trying their best and people are really thoughtful for the, for the most part. So I, I think that's sort of what needs to happen next. So. Yeah. So one of the recent articles that you, that came out, Stephanie, this fall was um, about testing cross-country skis at one of the local cross-country ski areas, one of the wooded parks in Duluth, Minnesota. Um, and for it, you know, I, I think it did a really nice job of laying out kind of what the methods were for testing the skis. There were probably 10 different people um, who all had, you know, quite experienced and it seemed like a really fun project to be involved with, with like the, you know, behind the scenes making of the article. Um, and I'm wondering if you could talk about, you know, either that project or another favorite project that you've had or experience that you've had, um, you know, in your in your career. That's an awesome project to talk about because it was so much fun to bring all those people together. And I have to say right off the bat that I was by far the least experienced cross-country skier in terms of you know, a lot of these people have skied the Berkey like 20 times and they were high school racers. And I've always been a skier, but have never, have never really competed at that level. So I just really, what happened is that we put the word out. My sister is a relatively competitive or used to be Nordic skier. And so she put the word out to all of her friends and they all just came. We set these two days in March and it was sort of the end of the season. And it was sort of fun because one of the days was really cold and one of the days was really warm. And so we had these extreme testing experiences and it was just so much fun to gather those people. And Brian, my partner, you know, did all the waxing because he's got a lot of experience in waxing. And so it just felt like a, a real community effort and everyone sort of participated and it was great feedback and um and really a fun way to sort of showcase you know Duluth as a premier in Minnesota and Wisconsin in the Midwest is a premier cross-country ski area which I think sometimes gets a little glossed over in the coastal national coverage so it was a great project and I, if I ever test bikes or fat bikes I'm gonna I'm gonna get <laughs> Perfect. 
We were, um, I was talking to someone yesterday um, who is not from here, from Minnesota. She's from the West Coast in very warm LA, um, well, LA. And um, I was, I keep talking to her about how I want to get her on the trails. Like, I just want to get her either walking them or like, you know, just in the snow. And, um, you know, and we were talking about proper gear and all of that kind of stuff. I mean, as a travel writer, you research and you experience gear at a level that most of us don't get the opportunity to do. But to try to even just get somebody who has no experience at all, like even just out with like proper clothing and shoes and, you know, whatever in these, these like Northern climates, what would be a suggestion? Oh man, I think Leah is the expert at that. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I definitely, you know, I, it's so funny you say that because I think like Nordic skiing and fat biking, for example, they're two totally different activities and you have to dress differently. Um, and, and Nordic skiing, you tend to just work up a sweat immediately mm-hmm. and, and fat biking more, you try to regulate a little bit better, I think, because you're out there longer usually. And so, so I think, um, obviously layering and having quality product from the get-go and, you know, a good base layer. And then also oftentimes, you know, less is more, you know, start out a little colder than you think you're going to be or than you want to be. (laughs) And um, you'll eventually get warmer. And then also just having an end game, you know, like having a super beefy puffy at the end Mm. (laughs) at the end of the route or wherever that you can throw on or you know if you're out like Leah just having you know some trusted really lightweight puffy that you can put on to warm your core um drink liquids drink hot liquids that's how I do it anyway (laughs) yeah Mm -hmm. I think one one other tip that I have is to be patient with yourself and not give up on yourself because I think there's an acclimation thing that happens like every year in November, you know, when I'm walking the dog and it's in the twenties or like high teens, I think like, can I really make it through another winter here? Like, am I going to make it or am I going to freeze? Like, I'm so cold right now. Like, how am I going to be able to do, you know, be out biking in sub-zero conditions or single digits even. And, um, and then a couple weeks later, like I feel better And, you know, this morning I actually, it was in the twenties or maybe high teens. I don't know. I came to work without a warm jacket on because I was like, you know, it's cold. (laughs) I'm just going to just head out now. And so I think, I think the more that you kind of are exposed to it, then you get more comfortable in those conditions. So at the beginning, you know, in November, I'm bundled in my warmest jackets to go outside and walk the dog and come to work. And then, um, you just kind of get used to it. So Leah, is that a real, um, um, uh, process? I mean, do you, like, you really start shedding clothing as, as this winter goes on and, and, and is it because you feel, you feel like you can shed clothing or you're like, I need to toughen up and, you know, <laughs> yeah, part of it, part of it was putting myself into a cold situation. I'm working with a coach right now. And so he sent me an article recently about acclimate, acclimating, to the cold and that recommends like cold showers and some other things. And it said, like, if you get into a situation where you're shivering, that's actually good. Cause then your body is figuring out how to generate heat and keep you warm. Um, so, you know, and like, 
it's like in the spring when it's like 20 degrees and it's sunny and you're like, Hey, look, it's so, so nice and warm out. So, so yeah, I mean, this morning I did a little bit just to do it for, for fun and just to see if I could, but, um, wow. So I'm curious, where is your edge with that? Like, like how much shivering is like too much? Shivering? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Cause personally, I don't like to be cold. So <laughs> So do you even yeah. experience cold, Leah? Like when you are out, you do. Wait, sorry. What was the, what was the do, first part of the question? Do you experience cold? Like oh, yeah. when you're out biking, you do. Yeah. And oftentimes what I do is I'll start out with a bunch of layers on, you know, like if you're at a checkpoint or, you know, something, or if I stop, I'll put layers on and I'll ride for, or if I'm going for a bike ride from my house and it's dark out or really cold, I'll start with my puffy jacket on and then get 10 or 15 minutes into it and then take it off. So that's one nice thing about fat biking is I oftentimes have like a frame bag or a seat bag. I have somewhere to put a jacket, um, which I don't always have when I'm cross-country skiing so that I can start with the warm layers and then take them off once I'm warmed up. Otherwise, you know, what people will do when they're cross-country skiing is go out, kind of do a lap with, you know, warmer mittens and maybe a jacket and then go back to the car and put those in and then go out on the rest of the ski there's a strategy. I always, I've, that's what I've learned from the Gruens. There's uh-huh. <laughs> everything like in the outdoors. Yeah. Jody, what's your, I'm so curious. What's your favorite, like Minnesota sport or activity or outdoor? Oh, that's a really good question. I mean, I was really, so when I first met Leah's brother, Andy, um, I really thought like the bicycle was for exercise like only exercise. Like I didn't really understand commuting or anything like that. And he was like a bike, like he didn't have a car and he just was like a bike guy. And so that really opened my eyes to like, Oh, you could like bike to a coffee shop. (laughs) Like you don't have to just bike for, but I just like, didn't have the, I just didn't have experience, like thinking of the outdoors as a place that you do anything other than be at a cabin and water ski. And I mean, so I ski, I grew up like water skiing and stuff, but I was a cabin kid. Um, And then, you know, like slowly I was introduced to camping through this family. And now I like love, love, love that. And now I'm just like totally like dabble in everything. Like I have, you know, skate skis and cross country skis. And I like got into like the cold plunge at the lake. And I got, I mean, I'm just like every, it's just like has opened my eyes to just all of the incredible opportunities that we have here. And I just love to just try everything. So I don't know if I have a favorite as much as I'm dabbling and I'm just like loving my life. That's cool. You're in the right family. Yeah, totally. (laughs) Definitely. Definitely. Lots of expertise. And then also like a lot of patience, the they're patient people and they love to share their knowledge And they love to kind of help people along and really encourage people to get out there and try and like not make you feel bad. Like that's, I think, one of the key things has been my experience is like the being around people that are willing to help you and not make you feel like you can't hang with them or you're holding them back or whatever. I think that's kind of key to a novice, you know, getting involved in something. Um, It's just, you know, like I've never felt bad because I'm not a great paddler or that I can't, you know, keep up on a mountain bike or, you know, whatever. Like I've, you know, I've just been able to really have a great time and just enjoy myself. So 
Well, that's such a great example of how hopefully the outdoor culture is changing for the better, you know, like a little bit less of that, like elitism, which is awesome. Yeah, totally. And I live too, I live close to Theaterworth Park. So I have the Lopet Foundation, like, you know, and they're creating such amazing programming and opportunities for women and people that just haven't had access to the outdoors and equipment and things like that. So I'm in a prime spot to just try a lot of things and connect with people in a way that um, I wouldn't be able to probably if I didn't live in this particular space. Could we jump to social media? <laughs> I'm just wondering about your thoughts on social media. Like how has that helped or hindered? Yeah, you know, I I am a bit of a dinosaur and I will admit that. Um, and I think it was a hard transition to make. I think the good parts are that I'm seeing a lot of good stuff out there. Like I'm... A friend of mine, Evan Green, was just part of the first um, all-Black Everest expedition, and he's just a fun person to follow because he just is doing really cool things out there. And um, so in that regard, I think it's a great thing. Um, I, I think in my own mind, it's it's sort of, you know, as a journalist, you feel somewhat pressured to put stuff out there. Um but in the same time, I think in some ways the you know, what I love about the outdoors and I just grew up in it is just the purity of it, you know, and not ever really thinking about broadcasting it. Um, and um, it just it still feels a little foreign to me and a little forced. Um, and, you know, luckily, I work with publications who don't seem that concerned about my social media following. Um, but at the same time. I'm in a book group or I'm in, I'm in a, a group with writers and like, let's say if you're, you know, publishing a book or something, you know, your following is pretty important and um, you know, you have to maintain it and you have to nurture it. And, you know, it just is another thing to spend time on and, 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 I, and it does provide community. So I think it's just a matter of sort of getting in the right community within that social media um, universe and using it because I, you know, using it, for the best. Um, and so, yeah, that's sort of my thought on it anyway. Yeah. Leah, how about you? Do you feel pressure around social media? A little bit. I mean, not too much. My phone, the camera on my cell phone broke like a few weeks ago and I haven't replaced it yet. So like, I haven't really posted anything because I can't take any cool pictures of what, you know, of anything. So, um, but I mean, to some extent, but not, not a ton. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure with sponsorships, I mean, I know with, you know, lots of things, everybody looks at your social media following to like, see if you're legit or not, but yeah, that doesn't, it doesn't actually mean anything and you can buy followers and you can, you know, I mean, all of this, everything is rigged, you know? Mm -hmm. So yeah. Finding content in people that are actually, you know, like dear to your heart or that, you know, like somehow connect with you is way more important than, you know, following someone that has a million followers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What about return trips, Stephanie? Um, I just had an experience going back to New York City for the first time after COVID or well, now it's still during COVID, but you know what I mean, where it feels safer to travel 
Um, and again, I had the same experience in the airplane too. Like, should I be doing this? And we did it. Um, but going to a place and like, I had sort of had this thing where I don't want to go back to the same place all the time. Um, and that's kind of the thing that I love about, again, getting involved in this family, because I went to the, I went to the cabin every weekend. Like that is what we did as a family. And I didn't know any better and I loved it, you know, but now there's all these places that you can visit and all of these experiences you can have. And um, going back to New York City, I was like, oh my gosh, this was like a different experience. Again, like every time you go to this place, it feels different. Are there outdoor spaces that kind of can give you that same experience or like the, you know, a different experience each time? Yeah, I would say one that really resonates with me is Columbia. Um, I studied there in 1991 when I was in college and um, I just fell in love with that country. And it was a pretty, pretty brutal place to be then because of Pablo Escobar. Like that was his reign of Columbia. And so we actually got kicked out. Our program got kicked out. And so so I wanted to go back to Columbia and for a long time, it wasn't a very safe place to go. And so then I think in like 2011, I followed the FARC. The FARC is the, you know, the gorillas and they have a website and they made this big deal on their website that they were going to start this peace accord with the government. So I was like, oh, this is the time for me to go back to Columbia. And so I went back to Columbia and I did this, reported this story for three weeks and um, had access to some really interesting places um, via the people I was traveling with. And, and it's just a place where if you, you know, like if you read Gabriel Garcia and Marquez, it just feels like a bottomless pit of beauty and culture. Mm -hmm. And it's just, so that place to me represents just that a place that I can never get enough of. And I've since been back there again and was just talking to a friend yesterday about possibly going back. Um, so there are places, Italy's another one of those places. I just, I love Italian culture. I love how they live for the most part. And I just, it's like, you just can't, I feel like a sponge every time I'm there. It's just like, I can't get enough of Italy. Um, so I think places just resonate, you know, more than others, I would say. Leah, how about for you? I don't, I, I like going to the same place. I mean, I, I love going to new places, but I also love revisiting the same places. Um, my brother-in-law on through my husband. So a different side of the family lives in Paris mm -hmm. and I could, you know, we, we visit him frequently. We haven't been there since before COVID, but you know, I could go like, I can spend all the time that I have in Paris and just go and, and explore new places within the city. But it always feels different because, um, cause we're always going different places and doing different things. And, you know, now that we've been there, so many times and, you know, we stay with him and his partner when we're there. Like we, I think that we have a, you know, we kind of have the experience of a local unless like a tourist. Mm -hmm. And so it's our goal not to like see sites, but to go to cafes and go to the grocery store and kind of like, um, kind of experience it differently than the first, you know, bunch of times, handful of times that I was in Paris. So yeah, that's so fun. Mm. Yeah. I've never been to Paris. I want to go. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Well, it sounds like Leah could be your um your guide. Yeah. For an authentic Parisian experience. Yeah. Yeah. So Stephanie, you just finished a big project. A big book came out, 100 Great American Parks, which is an illustrated collection of um the um 
Parks in the United States, published by National Geographic. I was curious to know how the process of writing that uh, book went. It seems like a big, a big job, a big task. Wondering how long it took, if there were any challenges along the way, or if it was just smooth sailing, and how you got through those challenges. Yeah, that was an interesting, really interesting story because they reached out to me in January of 2020 and I had lined up, you know, I had a travel schedule lined up. I was going to, um, I was actually going to Antarctica, which I ended up canceling, but they, they asked me to write an international parks book. And so I started on the outline for international parks and as COVID kept getting worse, they're like, Oh, we're going to do domestic parks. So let's change the lineup. So, so luckily some of the parks I had chosen were, were in the U S but, um, but then I just cleared my schedule of all travel and it was such a blessing because it was really, it turned into really just this big research project. I had probably been to a little more than half of the parks that I wrote about. So some of them I, I, I didn't, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't go to because I didn't have the time and there was COVID. Um, so it was actually a wonderful, it, it it was a wonderful research project because I could just delve into this one big project and just call people and talk to them about these parks and learn more about the U.S. And and in all honesty, I didn't I felt like I was taking a college course in U.S. history just because I I really didn't know as much about the parks as I you know, just because my, a lot of my focus has been on international travel as a younger person. So, so it was just sort of this, you know, cosmic irony that it all sort of came into place when it did. And it it felt like the greatest project to do at that time. And I'm so grateful for it. And I learned a lot of cool stuff. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. What was the how- most, what was the most surprising thing that you learned through that project? Well, I think, you know, we we put all this emphasis on these huge parks like Yosemite and Yellowstone, but, you know, there are these other parks like um, the Harriet Tubman. Harriet Tubman actually has two national national park entities devoted to her. Um, One new one is in Maryland and it's sort of, and one is in New York where she became, where she freed herself. And this one is in Maryland and it's all about her life in slavery as an enslaved woman. And you know, things like she lived with epilepsy because someone, a slave owner had thrown a brick at, at an escaping slave and it hit her in the head instead. And so she did all of this amazing stuff while living with epileptic seizures her whole life. And so it's just these things that are sort of hidden in our history that unless you have a really good history teacher, you know, they're out there for us to learn about in these parks. Neat. And who would have ever thought as a travel writer that you would be learning about U.S. history on that yeah, level? That's exactly. cool. And I just, I learned so much and there's still so much to learn. I mean, I, I hate to confess, but I've never been to Yosemite National Park, I, which is sort of like a rite of passage, you know, but it always felt like it was so crowded that I never felt like going. So I need to go there. <laughs> mm-hmm. I haven't been either, but I'm going this year. I already have it. Planned. Oh, yay. Yeah. Good. With women. Fun. I'm going to do my first um, backpacking trip. I've never actually done backpack hiking before. So wait, I, I want to know what Leah, your next adventure I is. I know Leah. Um, the next big thing that I have on my calendars, I'm biking the, I did a road trail invitational starting in late February. 
So February 26th. Um, so it's a race in Alaska on the Iditarod Trail. Um, the race has two lengths. There's a 350 mile version, which I did six years ago. Um, or you can do the full thousand mile race all the way from basically outside Anchorage up to Nome on the Bering Sea. Um, so I'm going to do the thousand. So I'm really excited for that. Um, I expect it to take me a few weeks and, um, I'm really excited to, so the, the human powered race starts a week before the Iditarod dog sled race. And so for most bikers, if you do the 350, you don't see the dog teams. You can see like at some of the checkpoints that they're stockpiling straw, um, and plastic and some of the food, um, and that kind of stuff. But because I'm going to be out there for so long, I expect to get passed by the dog teams once I'm, you know, halfway into it or something. So I'm really excited to, to see the teams both on the trail and at the checkpoints and um, just kind of take it all in and maybe get to meet some of the mushers and, of course, the other people doing the race and going through the uh, villages. So, um, so I'm gearing up for that. I've been working with a coach since the summer. And now I'm getting all my gear ready. Um, I have two kind of intermediate goals heading into that. One's the <clears throat> Tuscobia 160, which is a bike race in northern Wisconsin on New Year's Eve, um, 160 miles on a kind of a rail trail. And then the Arrowhead 135 in late January. Um, and hopefully this will be my 10th finish at the Arrowhead um, if it all goes well. So that's in northern Minnesota from International Falls to Tower. Um, one of the I think the first race of this format in the lower 48, at least that I'm aware of, it was kind of modeled after the Alaska Iditarod Trail Invitational race. So that is incredible that you're calling that your medium goal. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh, I'm gonna, I, I, oh my gosh. I want to talk to you more about this. That's exciting. Good luck. I hope I talked to Thank you, you. That, but yeah. Um, exciting. Stephanie, I loved watching your face as she was talking and you're just shaking your head. <laughs> what? I know that's how I feel with this one too. Wow. Um, so Stephanie, back at you quick before we go, what are you working on next? Like what, what can we expect from you? What are we going to see if you can share? Well, I'm working on a story about bike packing for outside actually. <laughs> cool. It's way more, um, it's a trip I took to Utah and it's, it's like bike packing light. And really the, um, all you need to know is that you really need to just carry less stuff when you're bike packing. <laughs> um, but it was a super fun trip and, um, it's sort of a new route through Utah, um, and didn't have any super huge con or, um problem other than the fact that my crocs like got caught in my back wheel and almost made me like kill myself but other than oh no <laughs> so um no it was a really it was a fun fun way to start out bike packing so that will be coming up and then I actually have a national geographic story coming up but um in the spring that I don't know if I can say much about but it's in the yellow book and it's in april and it's about this part of the world so oh Yep. All right. So we'll watch yeah. for it. Yeah. March or April. Okay. Yeah, and so if we want to follow you and your work, what is yeah. our best way for our listeners to, <clears throat> to catch I up would with you? say my Instagram account, which I don't even know the handle. I think it's, <laughs> it's, you could find me under Stephanie Pearson, but um, I think it's Stephanie A. Pierce. 
I'm not sure. I'm looking for it right now. Okay. You know what? I'll find it and put it in our show notes. And Great. everybody can find it that way. <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you for the fun conversation. Really oh, appreciate it. So nice to meet yeah. you. Leah, thank you so much for this connection. Yeah, and, this has been great. Yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah, it's clear that you guys know how to have a good time. So doing good things and fun things in the outdoors. Yeah, right. thank you, Jody. Thank you. All right. Okay. Thank All you. Right. Bye. Bye. We Do This For Fun is supported by 515 Productions, a high-end video production business based in Minneapolis. The website is 515productions.com. And did you know that Jody is also a health and wellness coach? Check out her website at jodygruen.com. If you like this podcast, we'd love your support. Please rate and review us and hit subscribe. Learn more about us at wedothisforfun.com. As always, we welcome your questions and feedback. Email us at wedothisforfun at gmail.com. We'll be dedicating future episodes to answering your questions. So let her rip, whether it's about gear purchases or tampons and IBS in the wilderness. We do not judge. We promise. We've been there, done that. Nothing is off the table. And thanks for listening.